Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us today in worship. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. And if you have your copy of the New Testament, I'll invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 12, which will serve as our text for today. And we'll get to it here in just a moment. I do want to thank you for your prayers for our family. As many of you know, Cindy did have surgery this week. She is at home and uh, recovering. We're grateful for that. Uh, When I left this morning, she told me she was looking forward to a good sermon. And uh, she was tuned into joelosteen.com, so I'll find out (coughs) how it went when I get back home. I'll let you know. So uh, anyway, but thank you for your prayers. We're very appreciative. So if you've been a part of our church at all in 2022, you know that our theme this year is re dot, dot, dot. And as I was away last July in Angel Fire, New Mexico on study leave, um, I uh, was praying over 2022 and one morning I got up early and just, as I've shared with y'all, just had a notebook paper that was just empty and for some reason I felt led to write the word re or the prefix re at the top of that page and then I just began to write every word I could think of that began with that prefix re that had anything to do with our theology or the scripture and it just felt to me like 2022 needed to be about re everythinging everything and so that's where we are and so we have made our way through several re words already and I just want to remind you where we've been where we've been where we're going in the winter our theme was reflect and we studied the 23rd psalm together and spent the entire time uh, in that powerful poem from David the Easter season Romans 8 was our text and redeem was our word for that season we're now in the spring and reconcile is our word and we're studying 2 Corinthians together we'll end that today uh, this next Sunday, we'll start Recreate. Obviously, it's a play on words, Recreate. We're looking forward to this summer together. In fact, if you haven't had a chance to make your way to the Charlie Hamill Welcome Center, I'd invite you to do that today. There is a uh, place set up there for you to learn more about what's happening this summer in our church's life, and you can sign up and be a part of these uh, competitions that we'll be engaged in as a church family. We're playing pickleball and dodgeball and tennis and golf, and so you can sign up for those competitions, and then a lot of other things you can do this summer that we're looking forward to, and we're going to study the book of Ecclesiastes in June and July, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. And this summer, Rejoice will be our theme, uh, in August rather, we'll study Philippians together, and this year our summer Bible study is going to be a little different, we're going to do it on successive Sunday evenings, so on Sunday mornings I will preach a text from Philippians and Sunday evenings. We will study a longer text. And those first three Sunday nights in August, we'll study Philippians together. We'll have some fellowship time together as a church. And then the last Sunday night in August, we're going to have a service of remembrance where we will recognize and honor and remember all the people in our church family who've died in this past year, much like we did at the end of last summer. And then this fall, the theme is rededicate. We'll study 1 Corinthians this fall since we've done 2 Corinthians already, and then missions is going to be reclaim, and Advent is remember. And we'll use Luke's gospel for both November and the Advent season. So I'm looking forward to the journey ahead of us as we continue to just learn together the meaning and the 
the theology behind some of these powerful uh, images that are brought to mind with these words that begin with this prefix re. So with that said, I've shared with you every Sunday during this series the word reconcile, katalaso in Greek in the New Testament. The Greek word that's underneath that family of English words associated with reconciliation is taken from the accounting industry where coins were exchanged and accounts were reconciled, as it were. So that's where that word comes from. In the New Testament, the primary focus of reconciliation has to do with our relationship with God. So the New Testament has much to say about God reconciling the world to himself. But also in the New Testament, we are admonished to be reconciled with one another. So there is a a piece of reconciliation that has to do with our personal relationships. I would add a third dimension to that, and that is to be reconciled to our lives. And that's really what I want us to focus on today. Because sometimes when we look at our lives and what we're experiencing, it's hard to reconcile ourselves to it, to the circumstances we experience, certain levels of dissonance when we look at our lives So that's really what I want to talk to us about today. So with that said, as Kurt mentioned earlier, the message today is entitled Renewed in Weakness. I'll be honest with y'all. I don't want to be renewed in weakness. I would rather be renewed through strength. I I would rather be renewed through success. Uh, I'd rather be renewed through Sabbath. I have a whole list of options that I would rather be renewed through. However, it just so happens that God has seen fit in his sovereignty sometimes to renew us through weakness. And that's the testimony of the Apostle Paul today. So I want you to look with me at this text. It'll be a familiar one to you. 2 Corinthians 12. We're, we're in the middle of a conversation. Paul has been, um, he's been um, engaging the church at Corinth with their infatuation with some super apostles, some popular teachers and leaders there in Corinth that are opposed to Paul. And so he's, he's shared some words that might sound somewhat boastful. And then you come to chapter 12, verse 1, and we read these words. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. 
For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Well, this morning, I, I want to begin by just walking through a series of questions about the topics to me that are addressed in this text. So let's begin with the first one, success. How do we recognize it? If someone were to ask you, what is your definition of success? I wonder what your answer might be. How would you describe a successful person from your estimation in 2022? What, what factors have to be in a person's life in order for you to say that person is successful? As a matter of fact, I, I might phrase it this way. What things need to be in my life so that you would evaluate my life and say he's a success? Because that's more often how we do it. In other words, we look at our lives and we wonder how other people view us. It's our hope that they'll view us as successful people. So if that's my desire, then what needs to be in my life so that someone else will look at me and say, you know what, that's a successful person. Well, I think it's a great question. Paul, here in this letter, he's, he's in the middle of a very complex relationship in Corinth. We've talked a little bit about it. He's been there a couple times. He's written several notes to them. And it's been hard. It's been painful. The, the latter part of their relationship has been because there are people there who oppose him now and, and are not trusting his leadership. But the good news is, as a, as a whole, the bulk of the church has turned back to Paul, recognizing him as their founding apostle. Even though there are scattered within the church, there are some teachers who are encouraging people to be more focused on them because they see themselves as more successful than Paul. Now, now think about it. The church in Corinth was a group of house churches. So they're scattered on Sunday morning for Bible study and worship with different leaders. And so some of those leaders are pushing the church away from Paul. And we're in the middle of their, their reconciliation. It hasn't been fully consummated, but it's on its way. So Paul is discussing this with them. Now, the city of Corinth was an affluent city in the ancient world. It was strategically located. It was, it was commercially um, wealthy. It was a transportation hub. It was located on this narrow isthmus. So a lot of folks, a lot of trade, a lot of goods came through Corinth. And so it was a very wealthy, affluent community. It was a community known for its infatuation with sports and athletics. The Isthmian Games were located there or held there in Corinth, second only to the Olympic Games in Athens. So this was a community, by all estimation, that would have been deemed in the first century as successful. I've shared with y'all before that we provided this booklet, Reconcile, for you as we made our way through this conversation uh, this season. And Kurt Grice has written an introduction to each one of my sermons. And so let me read you an excerpt from the introduction to today's sermon where Kurt has written, the surrounding culture of Corinth celebrated wealth, pleasure, and assertiveness. Sports, entertainment, and captivating speakers were favorite pastimes. Social status and rugged individualism were a source of great pride. Material possessions and personal achievements determined an individual's place in society. And, and here's Kurt's summary. Perhaps things haven't changed so much over the past 2,000 years. <laughs> well, I would agree with that assessment. In some ways, that's what people would say in Arlington in 2022. That's what it means to be 
a success. Well, when you read Paul's story and take an assessment of Paul's life, I wonder how many of us would say about Paul, successful. Is that the one word that you would describe this man's life? Well, on the one hand, there was a measure of success in Paul's life. So, so for example, if you still have your Bibles open, look at, look at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, just one page back. And Paul says in verse 21, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool now. In other words, I'm boasting. I'll, I'll dare to boast about it. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? So am I. That sounds very familiar to me. Um, in Philippians, Paul says something very similar. In Philippians 3, Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. So Paul basically says, I've had a measure of success in my life. What's interesting in Philippians 3, though, is right after he says all that, he says, I count all that as rubbish, though, in comparison to knowing Jesus and having that walk with him. So Paul has experienced a certain measure of success. On the other hand, though, in all honesty, when some of these people in Corinth looked at Paul, they saw him as weak. And Paul gives that testimony. There's a certain weakness about Paul. In fact, again, if you look at chapter 11 again, he, he, he tells us the most interesting story. I don't know if you've read this text or thought about it much or made the connection. But in verse 30 of chapter 11, Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I'm not lying. It says, in Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and I slipped through his hands. Do y'all remember that story? It's, it's told in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, Paul goes to Damascus to persecute Christians on the way he's converted and becomes a follower of Jesus. He gets to Damascus, he's baptized there, he begins serving God there, he starts teaching in the synagogues. Many of the Jews get mad at him, they decide to kill him, and some friends of Paul under the cover of night, put Paul in a basket and they sneak him through a hole in the wall and drop him down outside the wall and he runs for his life. So that's the story he tells. And he says, it was a time of weakness. And here's what's interesting, y'all. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Corona Muralis, but it was very famous in the first century. And everybody in Corinth who read and heard what Paul just said would have this image in their mind, the Corona Muralis. It's the wall crown in English. And it was a gold wall-shaped award of a, of a fortified city. It was an award. And anytime the Romans invaded a foreign territory and they encountered a walled city, the first Roman soldier to actually climb over the wall successfully and enter that city was given this award. The first Roman soldier to ascend the wall successfully was given the Corona Muralis. It was a very famous award. It was the most famous award for the typical Roman soldier. 
Paul is telling the story and Paul says, I was not the first one up, I was the first one down. In other words, when I found my life in peril, instead of being like a Roman soldier who demonstrates military bravery and ascends a wall, instead, under the cover of darkness, my friends stuck me in a basket, a grown man stuck me in a basket and snuck me, I don't know, is snuck a word in Texas? It is, and it snuck me, sneaked me, um, hid me, whatever you, however you want to put it, in a basket, through a hole, in a wall, and dropped me on the other side, and I ran for my life. Now, there are some people who would have read that story and would have busted out laughing in the first century, because that's the very opposite of what a Roman soldier would have done. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, I just need you to know, I've got weakness in my life. But it's in that weakness, though, that God used me, and guess what? I was able to continue my ministry because of it. And so if you want to judge by appearances, well, that's really up to you. So I guess what I would say to y'all this morning is when I read Paul, this is what I think Paul would say. If you were to ask Paul, what's your definition of success? Here's what I think he would say to be obediently in the center of God's will, regardless of appearances. So even though Paul had weakness, and the way he engaged himself in ministry might have looked weak to some of the people who were opposing Paul, Paul would argue that I was in the center of God's will. And I would rather appear weak in the center of God's will than appear strong in the center of my own will. Does that make sense? So what is success? Well, it depends on your definition, I guess, and your perspective. Corey Ten Boom, she was visiting a family in Russia during the height of the Cold War. She tells the story in her book, Tramp for the Lord. And at that time, the Russians were persecuting Christians. She visited a certain community and a family there invited her to their home and so she went. And when she got there, the wife and the family was her body was racked by a particular disease and she was bedfast, only had control over her right hand and adjacent to her bed was a typewriter. And she got to know the husband and the wife and they explained that this wife and the family was not able to go anywhere or do anything. All she could do was stay there in the bed, but she typed diligently all day long on that typewriter. And she was translating from English to Russian, famous Christian literature for the underground Russian church. Books by Billy Graham, books by Corey Ten Boom, actually. And Corey says, she told the husband as she was leaving, she said, I'm so sorry about your wife. She said, it must be terrible. And he said, oh, you know, it's been hard. He said, but you know, here in our village, in our community, the police know all the Christians. And they visit everybody's home and were persecuted she said, but my wife, he said, but my wife's been sick for so long. They quit coming to our house years ago. And they think she's completely harmless and they have no idea. She's the very distributor of the Christian literature that we're using throughout all of our churches. So I'd ask you, is that, is that woman a success or not? Again, it depends on your perspective. And how God chooses to use us when we're in the center of his will, regardless of appearances. 
The next topic in this text has to do with spirituality. And I would ask this question, how do we experience it? How do you experience your spirituality? What are your spiritual experiences like as a follower of Jesus? Paul, in this text, he describes a pretty remarkable experience. He says, I know a guy. Now, he's using a a certain technique that was familiar to them in the first century, a little bit distant from us. He's actually giving a testimony. This is his story. And he tells about a time in his life, 14 years ago, he says, by now, by the time he writes this letter, the most amazing thing happened. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I'm not really sure. But here's what happened. This person, Paul, was translated. And he was translated into what he calls the third heaven. And he describes this inexpressible experience And he's like one of the saints of old, like Elijah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. But Paul would never compare himself to any of those people. But in any event, this incredible experience where he hears things he says that nobody should ever hear, no one could talk about. It's an amazing experience. It was an incredible spiritual encounter that transformed Paul's life. Isn't it fascinating, though? This is the only place he ever talks about it. Now, I'm just going to tell you, if this had happened to me, I'd talk about it all the time. You ever had one of these? I mean, you know where you get translated up to the third? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, we see. I mean, some of us, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> and uh, maybe you'll get there one day, you know, have one. Maybe you'll get to the, I don't know, second heaven. Maybe you might not ever get to the third heaven. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Isn't it fascinating? Something this unbelievable, he never even talks about it. He waits 14 years. And then he just gives a snippet. It. And here's what I think is happening. Paul is wanting us all to know this is not the norm. He doesn't expect this to be the norm. This is not something that just happens to everybody. And Paul doesn't want you to think you're less than because this has never happened to you. And he's not trying to prove his apostleship through it. He's just letting us know it happened. I'm going to tell you in just a second why he tells us. We're about to find out why he tells us it happened. Because he wants us to better understand suffering. That's where we're headed. It's kind of an amazing twist in this story. But the point is, Paul is basically saying, our spiritual experiences typically are much more mundane than that. Mine have been. My spiritual experiences have been way more mundane than that. They've happened to me at the most interesting and unusual places. I've had the most incredible encounters with God in some of the most normal, mundane places. On a random Monday morning, sitting stuck because of, train is coming through my city and my first thought why do we still have trains in the 21st century get past that and one day sitting right up here on center street I had one of the most amazing encounters with God as I sat there and reflected on all the things the Lord had been doing in my life it was just a mundane routine traffic jam Monday morning but guess what it was powerful for me Most of my spiritual experiences with God have been like that. They've just occurred in the everyday. That's how it typically is. That's what Paul would argue. Here's what I think Paul wants you to know. Paul's apostleship, it's not founded in this kind of stuff. It's founded in building up the community and serving the greater interest of the kingdom of God. See, when God does a work in your life, it's not just for you. It's not just for you to experience it. Our spiritual experiences are both to be strengthening of our own faith and they should also contribute to the overall witness and testimony of the body of Christ. You see, God's working in your life so that you can work in mine. That's how it works. 
And together, we serve him together and we live in community and we, it builds up the body of Christ. We live in community with the people of God. And so how do, I, how do I experience God's presence in my life? Well, I experience it in such a way that it happens to me individually, but it bleeds over into the community. It's fascinating to me, though, the reason why Paul tells us about this in the first place. Why would he tell us now, after all these years, why now? Well, the reason is, is because he wants these people there And I believe through him, the Lord wants us to know more about suffering. And so my question about suffering is how do we explain it? What do we say as Christians when people suffer? What is the answer? Well, would you agree with me? Paul had his fair share of suffering. Wouldn't you agree? Again, look back at at, uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I I am more. He says, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. Does this sound like a successful resume to y'all? He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And then he says, not only all of that, look what he says in verse seven. After he tells about this incredible spiritual experience, he says, now, to keep me from being conceited, I have been given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger from Satan that torments me. And then he says, I have pleaded with God three times to remove it. And every time God has said, no. He asked him again and God said, no. And again, and God said, No, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. God said, no. Suffering. Paul suffered. I I would say this to you about suffering. It's a multi-layered, multi-dimensional reality. There are no easy answers when we ask the question, why do people suffer? Where is God Where was God when this happened? Whatever it might be. My goodness, what a question. Where is God? Where is God? Seriously, where is God? God has never been more near to you than when you are, than he is and when you're suffering. He is always, always present with his people. Always. Paul knew about it. It was even confusing to Paul in some ways. You know, in Acts 
19, the Bible says in Acts 19, verse 11, verse 12, Paul had the gift of healing. Paul could just heal people. As a matter of fact, Luke says, you could, you could, you could just bring a handkerchief and touch Paul, take that handkerchief and touch a sick person and they would be healed. Isn't that interesting? And then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, Paul says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. What? Why didn't you throw a handkerchief on him? Why would Paul leave somebody sick? You know why? Because suffering is complex. It's multi-layered. There are no thin answers to the thick question of suffering. Do I even need to remind you of it? Recently, in Buffalo, there was a senseless shooting, apparently racially motivated. Someone chose to attack other people just because they were from another race. And then this week in Uvalde, Texas, a crazed, young, broken man makes his way into one of our schools and brazenly, senselessly kills two teachers and 19 innocent, vulnerable children in our state, on our watch. These are our children. It's tragic. It's deeply disturbing. And we've all been deeply affected by it. It has rent our nation. And then, in our own historic denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't know if you've read about this report that's just recently come out. Details are now emerging of years of mistreatment of people in our churches across our faith family who were abused, attacked by sexual predators. And the reports were given to the highest echelon, the highest leaders in our denomination, given to the, the core leadership team, the executive committee of our convention. And these leaders, apparently, according to this report, swept it all under the rug. Not only that, but they then re-victimized the survivors of these cases of abuse and made them to feel as if they were responsible for what happened to them. And this has gone on for years. And countless women primarily and children have been abused in our churches and seminaries 
while the leaders stood by. I don't, I don't even have the words to communicate my incredible disappointment. I wrote you all a letter this past week. Many of you perhaps got it. As your pastor, I needed you to know what's happened. In fact, the letter, if you want to get one today, it's in our Welcome Home Center. You can pick one up. These survivors, our hearts go out to them. And it reminds me that we must be, we must continue to be diligent to protect those who are vulnerable in our churches. Lord, have mercy. Suffering. I don't, I don't have any easy answers this morning. This is what I would say. As I've looked at suffering through the years, if I've experienced it in my own life, here's how it appears to me. Some suffering is just the result of the human condition. We live in a broken, fallen world, and things just happen. Disease, war, famine, disasters. It's all just a part of being human. Some suffering is caused by evil. What I just described to you, what other word would would we use? It's evil. And it leaves such harm in its wake. But you know, y'all, according to the teaching of the Bible, some suffering is God-directed. Job. Paul. Paul says, he says, because of these great revelations I've had to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. He calls it a messenger from Satan. But in Paul's understanding, nothing came Paul's way that wasn't filtered through the hand and the heart of God in this kind of situation. My experience with God-directed suffering is it's usually better understood in retrospect. I can't fully explain it. But this is what I would say about it this morning. Here's my hope. Like Paul, I hope that when suffering comes our way, it turns us more deeply into our relationship with God and his people. I hope it strengthens our life with him and it increases our usefulness for him. That would be my desire in my own life and what I would pray for you. Which leads me to this one other question real quickly. Strength, speaking of strength, how do we measure strength? Once again, it depends God said to Paul, I'm not going to remove this thorn, but I want you to notice what God did say. Look at verse nine. My grace and my power. Those pronouns are very important. (laughs) Not just grace, my grace is sufficient for you. Not just power, my power is available for you. In other words, God gives personal attention in your life when you suffer. Grace Dr. Garland, David Garland says in his commentary, grace is the favor that saves us, it's the force that sustains us. God's amazing grace is operative in my life and in yours, and his divine power is at work. Just imagine, God takes broken people like me and you, and through these challenging experiences, he shapes us so that we might be more useful for his kingdom's glory. 
That's a miracle in and of itself. And the only way it can happen is if we recognize that it's him at work in us and it's not our power and our strength. That we don't walk in our wisdom and in our way. We walk in his wisdom and in his way. And sometimes that leads us to weakness. But in our weakness, praise his name, he is strong. My power is not perfected in weakness. His power is perfected in weakness. Praise God. You know, as I said, there's no empty, there's no easy answers. But I want to encourage you this morning. Do not despair. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, 1861, his wife that he loved deeply, been married 18 years, she died tragically in a fire. Then his son joined the Union Army to fight in the Civil War. It was Christmas Day, 1863, and he awoke that morning to the uncertainty, the grief of his wife's death, the uncertainty of his son's future. And December 25th, 1863, he wrote this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'm so glad that's not the last verse. In his despair, he rallied. And he penned one other verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, today we, we bow in some ways, Lord, with heavy hearts. As Kurt mentioned at the beginning of this service, this is Memorial Day weekend, and we're reminded of all these men and women who gave their lives for freedom, not just for us, but for many around the world, and we're grateful. And on top of that, our grief at the shock of things that we have absorbed just this week. And so in our heaviness and our humility, we ask, O oh Lord, for your grace that it might be sufficient in every case that your power would be real in people's lives. And we ask, Lord, for you to be a God of provision, a God of comfort to those who need it. And we ask you to guide us, Lord, guide our, our thinking, guide our hearts as we grapple with these deep and complex issues in our society. Lord, hold us fast to your word and to your truth. Keep us deeply connected with you. Help us not to lose our way 
but to lead others to your way. We pray that you'll find us faithful in these moments. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.